Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. The discovery of genetically modified wheat in a field in Oregon is a growing concern around the world. Two million people in 436 cities in 52 countries. Their protest, 100% focused on genetically modified organisms, or GMOs. Why are so many people so opposed to GMOs? We have no idea what potential health complications arise. Some opponents of these GMOs want them banned. Others say foods whose DNA has been changed need at least to be labeled. Okay, Mike, if there's a third rail in our public conversation about food, it's GMOs. O's. You say those three little letters and people immediately just circle the wagons and hunker down with their tribe to insist that they're either the scourge of the earth or the savior of humanity. Tamar, are you implying that the GMO debate is not conducted in a purely objective manner with scrupulous adherence to the facts? (laughs) Are you suggesting that it's a festival of vibes? (laughs) I'm not implying it or suggesting it. I'm complaining about it. I was listening to a segment on PBS NewsHour just a couple weeks ago. It was about Aqua Bounty, the company that's making a genetically engineered salmon. And the reactions to it were pretty incredible. Here's Lisa Murkowski, the Republican senator from Alaska. We call this combination Frankenfish. Because it's just not right. Frankenfish. I guess Alaska doesn't like the competition. No, it doesn't. And I'm sure that Murkowski's donors in the wild salmon industry don't either. But what struck me is this notion that it's just not right. It's unnatural. And the NewsHour also talked to Fawn Sharp, who is the president of the National Congress of American Indians. And she made the same case. If we've somehow altered it, we shouldn't eat it. We believe very strongly that the salmon were gifted to our ancestors from the creator. And when the creator made and designed salmon, it was perfect. And for man to think that they could somehow modify it and make it better is is very arrogant. It's not right. We see the same hostility to genetically modified crops. And we've been modifying crops for millennia. That's why we breed plants. But people feel totally differently about it when we're tinkering with the genome. Well, that's for sure. I heard that NewsHour piece, too. This one was my favorite complaint. Aqua Bounty has never reported an escape. But opponents of the GMO salmon are concerned they might harm wild fisheries. I definitely watched the Shawshank Redemption sequel about the salmon (laughs) that escaped from a fish farm in Indiana and somehow made it to the ocean to harm wild fisheries. All right. In fairness, Aqua Bounty does raise its eggs near the ocean on Prince Edward Island. But I think we agree that a lot of these criticisms are not entirely rational, which is a bummer because I really didn't want to do a GMO episode. But it's right in our Climavore's wheelhouse. And there have been amazing advances in genetic engineering, and they have a lot of potential to help make more food with less land, which is, of course, our obsession. And there's also a lot of misinformation out there, especially on your nutrition issues. Okay, I'm going to do this episode, but I'm doing it under protest. Okay, wait a minute. I'm going to talk out of school here. Wasn't this episode your idea? 
Okay, yeah, it was. But I'm torn. It's so exhausting to deal with this issue. The fights over the very early GMOs, corn and soy that were resistant to glyphosate, the herbicide in Roundup, set the tone for a really fruitless argument that we're still having a quarter century later. GMO conversations have been the most polarized, the most vitriolic, and the least useful conversations in the food world. Well, maybe we can make it less polarized, less vitriolic, and more useful. I sure hope so, but old bugaboos die hard. Once being an anti-GMO becomes a badge of identity, the ideology becomes pretty hard to shift. The good news is bugaboo is a really fun word to say. And for that matter, so is Frankenfish. Hey, wait, I'm supposed to be the one who looks on the bright side. I'm Tamar Haspel. And my badge of identity is Michael Grunwald. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. How many of you do not want GMOs in your body? Yes? Okay, a lot of people. A lot of people have negative reactions to GMOs, and a lot of people don't really know what GMOs are. Or against GMOs, really know what they are. So we sent a crew to one of our local farmers' markets to ask people why they avoid GMOs, and more specifically, what the letters GMO stand for. What is a GMO? It's, it's a genetically monof- monof- I don't know, what is it? If you are eating whole foods, you want to eat what you're, you're eating. You, you know what I mean? You want to eat what you see. And so... What is a GMO? A general, a general modified ingredient, right? What is a GMO? Uh, it's a gen, it's a, something modified. What is a GMO? I don't know. So I really don't care. <laughs> a, what is a GMO? It's a genetically modified organism. Oh, that is brutal. And in fairness to the poor saps that Jimmy Kimmel's crew caught at the farmer's market, the O in genetically modified organisms isn't really that important. Well, they were going to call them genetically modified crops, but GMC was already taken. (laughs) Right. Right. Look, I think they made their point. I'm reminded of those surveys, and they're real surveys, where, what is it, like 80% of people say they don't want DNA in their food? Yeah, I know. I've seen those two. And I got to say, I'm not really all that fond of it. It's it's such a gotcha thing. It's so snarky. And it's making fun of people who are don't who are ignorant or don't know about a thing that not very many people really understand. And we all do this like in areas that are outside of our wheelhouse, we take our cues from people we respect and 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 we go with it without necessarily filling in all the blanks on on what G, M, and O stand for. Well, look, Tamar, you are clearly a better and less snarky person than me or Jimmy Kimmel. Um, but we sh- just did a couple shows about how people have, let's say less than perfectly informed reactions to stuff like soy or processed food. And I do think we agree that GMOs, this is another issue where the hatred is way ahead of the facts. And you know us, we have this crazy hope, illusion, dream that, uh, that maybe more facts will help. 
it, it feels sometimes pointless because, <laughs> like, we spend half our time talking about how facts don't persuade people and our other fa- half trying to persuade people with facts. Yeah, climavores being pointless since 2022. All right, tomorrow, let's, let's actually do some facts. Maybe you can uh, explain to our listeners who might not be entirely sure what exactly a GMO is. So in the most basic fundamental way, genetically modified organisms are organisms that have had a gene that was not in their genome inserted into their genome or in some cases deleted from their genome. Sometimes that gene can come from uh, the same kind of organism, like another fish. Sometimes it can come from an unrelated organism because all genomes basically speak the same language of DNA. And the reason people hate GMOs, I think, has less to do with genetic modification and more to do with some of the first GMOs to hit the market. And it it started at Monsanto and Uh, The scientists there and the executives were looking for a way to make crops resistant to their best-selling herbicide, glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. And if you ever want the full story, read Dan Charles's book, Lords of the Harvest, because it tells the whole story from the very beginning to when those uh, genetically modified seeds first hit the market in the 1990s. And there was definitely lots of bad behavior to go around. Um, but when consumers found out about it, it pressed all of their buttons because it has all of the things people love to hate. There was a lack of transparency, certainly to consumers. They knew nothing about it. Um, it was in basically all of the foods in the supermarket that were made with anything from corn and soy because it didn't take long for virtually all the corn and soy acreage to have this particular trait. It's completely undetectable, so people have no idea that it's in their food, and it's imposed on them by Monsanto, the corporation everyone loves to hate. So this, if you wanted to create something that would be tailor-made to induce animosity in the eating public, this is exactly what you would do. And it wasn't even the first... Right. It wasn't the first GMO on the market, right? Wasn't there like a table-stable tomato or something? (laughs) (laughs) It was the flavor-saver tomato, Mike. Yeah, something like that. And it it predated the GMOs from Monsanto, and it was supposed to have a better flavor and last longer, which are traits that consumers could appreciate. And as far as I know, nobody had a problem with it because it was something that benefited them. It didn't press all of those buttons. They knew exactly what it was. It wasn't big ag. It was a vegetable or a fruit, if you're going to be botanically persnickety. And <laughs> and so people, people were fine with it. And so I don't think it's just genetic modification that that makes people you know, balk. It was this suite of things that were involved in this particular genetic modification that just made it a PR nightmare. 
So it's interesting. It sounds a little bit like some of the earlier shows we did about soy, how where we said that it wasn't that people were actually objecting to soy. It was just something they latched onto because soy was kind of a nice stand-in for big ag, monocultures, you know, pesticides right. and herbicides and stuff they didn't like. Processed food was sort of like we lumped together with everything unhealthy um, and nasty. And this feels like kind of a similar situation with a particular Monsanto angle. It absolutely is. And like if you go back even farther and look at how plant breeders tried to advance crops before genetic modification, they actually took seeds and irradiated them because that would induce mutations. And then they would plant the seeds and see what we got. And that's how we got pink grapefruit. And It's kind of interesting that nobody really objects to that. And even seeds that have been modified in that way um, are acceptable in organic agriculture, for example, but genetically modified seeds are not. Right. And even the kind of classic breeding, right, which is just, okay, we're going to, you know, take the crops, the, the, the corn stalks that grow really well and breed them together, the ones that have, uh, you know, are more resistant to whatever, and uh, we're going to breed them together. That's still like man interfering with nature. It's just a little slower than, uh, than the genetic modification process. And I think th- that, though, is acceptable to people because you're just crossing two plants, something that does happen in nature. But when you take it out of the realm of something that happens in nature, that's when people get uncomfortable with it. Um, And there's a sense, it's a gut feeling that, okay, if it happens in nature, it's lower risk than if, you know, man does it in a lab and tinkers with the genome. But there's no real reason to believe that. And, you know, we have this picture of plants crossbreeding and and it's this neat, clean uh, collection of genes that happens in the offspring. But mutations happen with every coupling. And it's anybody's guess what those could be. I mean, theoretically, you could even have a mutation that makes things resistant to Roundup, which is exactly, of course, what happened in weeds. Um, and, And so it's a visceral, it's an emotional reaction to something that people just have this gut sense we shouldn't be doing. Like on the PBS NewsHour with with Aqua Bounty, we shouldn't be playing God. We shouldn't be messing with nature in this way. And it's a very deep-rooted feeling. And I think we do have to, you know, we've discussed in the past this, you know, that these food issues become cultural issues. And, and there are also personal issues where, you know, people have this kind of queasy feeling about mixing technology and food. And there is, in general in our society, there are people who have a queasy feeling about technology general. And then there are also people who are sort of, you know, technophiles who are going to assume that anything that has, uh, you know, any kind of tech is going to be superior. I don't think we're doing a spoiler alert to to say that Tamar and I, we, we don't really have a, you know, inherent problem with genetically modified foods. Um, and we do think that some of the technophobia um, that's, 
you know, just this kind of knee-jerk reaction to anything that has to do with, you know, we're messing with nature. We think that's overblown. But I think it's important to to recognize that particularly with the Roundup-ready crops, um, there were a lot of the sort of knee-jerk technophiles who were talking about how, oh, this is saving the world, um, this is going to boost yields so that we can feed 10 billion people by 2050, when in fact, particularly with the Roundup Ready crops, um, there was really very, very slight evidence of any yield effect. Um, and there have, for instance, with the uh, the BT cotton, the, the, the sort of natural insecticide sort of uh, injected in there, particularly in places that don't have a lot of herbicides and, and other chemicals, mm-hmm. um, there has been a pretty good yield effect. But in general, I think there has been, on the part of the pro-GMO community, which I certainly consider myself part of, I think there's been an exaggeration of the benefits that we've already seen. I think that's right. And I think, but your your larger point about, you know, technophiles and technophobes is really important here because I do think that that's almost like a temperamental thing. And and Charles Mann's book, The Wizard and the Prophet, I think delineates it very well that there's, you know, these two different worldviews about food. It is a great book. Um, and, and I think that one of the reasons these issues get so much traction in the community is that, and this is just a crank theory and it's all mine, is that the people who are sort of hardwired to be suspicious of technology are also maybe hardwired to care about the environment. And so there's there's a, that same naturalness um, can work both ways. It can make you really want to protect the planet, but also really be suspicious of technological solutions to do that. And so if we did the Venn diagram of, you know, people who care about the planet and people who are suspicious of technological solutions, we would have way more overlap than would ease the path for like the 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 green lighting of these crops. Tamar, that's such an awesome point, right? We're talking about the prophets in uh, in Charles Mann's book, right? The you know the Walden Pond people who uh, you know who love wilderness um, and and think things need to be natural, and it's great. But I think one thing that we've continually talked about on this show is the sort of for the environment, for the climate, we're going to need a lot of wizardry. <laughs> and we've seen right. it, right? We've seen it with clean energy. We've seen it with, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, some of the high-tech solutions on the energy side. Um, but we've talked about it with alternative proteins, the sort of fake meats, um, with even the, uh, you know, look at satellite technology that's that's monitoring our forests for deforestation. And particularly when we start talking about farming and food, the idea, if we're going to make more food on less land, which is kind of our real priority if we're going to stop deforestation and and uh, and protect the carbon sinks that we have on this planet. Um, we're going to need technological solutions. And even if GMOs have not provided that massive yield bump in the past, you know, I think hope springs eternal. And as we're going to discuss later, there's some reason to believe and hope that there could be really big yield bumps in the future. And I really hope the fact that, you know, Monsanto sort of overpromised 
um, both on the yield front and also uh, they were pretty emphatic that they didn't think weeds would develop resistance to glyphosate as a result of this, and that just turned out to be wrong, has really put the kibosh on people's attitudes about GMOs. Because, you know, some of the things that they promised actually did happen. Um, I think that BT crops have drastically reduced the use of insecticides. And although I think we're starting to see pests have resistance to it, um, it, it's been much slower than weed resistance to glyphosate. And so, and, and that has to be managed. There's no question about it. But I mean, some of the advantages did come through, but the important thing to remember and the thing that if we can leave listeners with one thing here, it's that genetic modification is a tool and you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. And more and more people seem to be using it for good. Tamar, just for one second, setting aside this whole question of technophobes and technophiles, um, I think, you know, no matter how pro-technology you and I might be, we would certainly have a problem with GMOs if they were measurably bad for us, right? I, um, I would hope so. <laughs> so talk to us as uh, you're the nutrition expert here. Um, you know, what do the studies show about GMOs and human health? So it's it's so funny about GMOs and human health because there certainly is an argument about not genetic modification in general, but some of the genetically modified crops that are out there specifically, Roundup Ready, um, that has had an environmental impact. And I think that you can make an argument, and I have made the argument, that it has been detrimental in some ways. But what people really care about is how it affects them. And this this opposition to GMOs, which, you know, originated basically with Monsanto releasing these seeds, morphed into a concern about, you know, how it affects us. Almost all of the corn and soy grown in the United States is genetically modified, and almost all processed foods in the United States have some ingredient from genetically modified corn and genetically modified soy. And we've been eating it uh, for 20-something years now, and nobody's really identified any bad health outcomes because of it. Now, can you make the argument, well, it would be difficult to tease that out because so many other things are happening in human populations, and you would be right about that, which is why I think the most compelling evidence that these things are safe comes from animals because pigs and chickens and to some extent cattle when they're in feedlots eat feed that is completely genetically modified. And they pivoted from eating non-genetically modified corn and soy to eating genetically modified corn and soy. And there appear to have been no problems whatsoever. Presumably health outcomes in the last, you know, couple decades have been getting worse. You do hear about this obesity epidemic um, and, you know, all, we're all eating all this terrible stuff. And, uh, you know, we're getting fatter, we're getting sicker. Um, and these are related to, a, a lot of it seems to be foods that happen to also be genetically modified. I guess what you're saying is that there's no evidence that it's the specific genetic modification that has anything to do with our bad health, health outcomes. 
Mike, I'll have to refer you to a Climavores episode about <laughs> processed food <laughs> and 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 why it's why it's bad for us. But you know, this has been looked at very closely by regulating agencies around the world. And for the most part, they determine that GMOs are safe. Now, you can go on the internet and find pictures of rats with hideous tumors. And and there's been a whole cadre of people doing research trying to show that GMOs are bad. And you can take mice or rats and feed them just about anything in some quantity until you get an adverse health outcome. But the the reputable research here does not point to human health problems. But you did mention that there is some environmental concern. Um, can you can you maybe elaborate on that? And in, in what sense have GMOs created environmental problems? So my biggest problem with GMOs writ large is with Roundup Ready corn and soy. And when they were put out in the 90s, as I said, Monsanto said, no, you don't have to worry about weeds becoming resistant to this herbicide. And I have had farmers tell me that they believed that. And okay, you can take that with a grain of salt because, you know, we know how plants develop herbicide tolerance and it was all but inevitable. And the problem was that Monsanto put the same herbicide tolerance in the two crops that are rotated together most in the United States, which, of course, are corn and soy. And that meant that each crop, each year, you're using the same pesticide regimen. You're using glyphosate rather than using different pesticide regimens for the different crops, which is one of the reasons you rotate crops in the first place. And so, you know, we had this problem with weeds developing resistance faster than people expected them to. And, well, certainly faster than Monsanto expected them to and faster than the farmers expected them to. And another thing that that GMO opponents were predicting actually came true. They, They said that, okay, well, if this is the way we grow crops, we just engineer in herbicide tolerance, it's just going to be an herbicide arms race. As weeds become tolerant to one, we do the next one. And that's exactly what happened. And the next one was dicamba. And that has been something of a debacle because dicamba, unlike glyphosate, has a tendency to drift. And so we had dicamba-resistant crops and then people spraying dicamba on them and that dicamba drifting and killing other farmers' crops or causing problems in other farmers' fields. And that has been a real problem. Um, And I don't want to give that short shrift just because we see a lot of upside with genetically modified crops. Well, I'm just, but as a, as an environmental issue, my understanding of Roundup was that uh, in many ways it was far less toxic than some of the chemicals it was replacing. Now, obviously, the resistance creates a problem that you're using more of it, and it creates a problem for farmers who have to spend more on on weed protection. But uh, but has there been a lot of examples of sort of environmental, you know? destruction because of uh, because of what's happened or is has this just been a kind of economic 
inconvenience? I think it's it's a little bit of both. You're totally right that certainly when Roundup Ready crops came out, the dependence on more toxic pesticides went down. But as weeds developed resistance, then we we started to see that tick up. And as for, you know, what are the harms of using more pesticides? I think that, you know, people argue about that too, but I think everyone agrees that less is better than more. Which is one reason the BT cotton has been such a such a hit in many ways is that it really has, you know, if you put your pesticide right into the into the plant, then you don't need to use as much pesticide and that's that's just an environmental win. Right. There's there's not peripheral damage. And if you talk about, I mean, the people who are at risk here because of, of pesticides aren't people who are eating the food. It's the people who are who are using those chemicals on the farm. It's mostly farm workers because their exposure levels are so much higher than ours. The pesticide residues you get in food are very, very low. And all the evidence that I've seen indicates that they're unlikely to be risky. But farm workers can definitely get get exposed to uh, to to risky levels of pesticides and BT has reduced insecticide spraying dramatically and you know some of the stories coming out of the developing world particularly uh, you know BT eggplant and BT cotton um, have really had positive impact on farmers and farm workers. Now you mentioned the effect on on uh, farm workers. We should, so let's we should at least mention there have been some massive jury settlements, right? You know, somebody has uh, cancer and they blame it on Roundup, and uh, they sue Monsanto, and the juries are like, oh wow, well that corporation should pay $46 jillion, right? Um, but my sense is that there's not phenomenal evidence that, uh, that Roundup is actually causing these cancers. It's so difficult when, you know, complex scientific issues get adjudicated in the courts. And yeah, uh, Bayer, which bought Monsanto, Monsanto doesn't exist anymore, lost a number of those but recently that the worm turned and i think the last 5 cases they actually won so you can read that as like the evidence is all over the place or you can read that as okay the more we know the more it looks like uh cancer is unlikely to be caused by exposure to roundup yeah and again i'm there's never been an actual study on humans showing that uh, that Roundup causes cancer. There have been, right, my sense is that there have been sort of animal studies that have showed a potential pathway by which, you know, it could uh, it could cause cause problems conceivably, but not that it's actually happened. There's so much speculation, and I think the best evidence in humans is in agricultural workers. And people still argue about whether that data does or doesn't show a connection between Roundup, between glyphosate. It's off patent now, so the the uh, anybody can sell it. Between glyphosate and non non Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the cancer that people are worried that that Roundup causes. You know, you just mentioned patents, and I think that is another thing that people uh, complain about with with uh, with GMOs, right? This idea of you know, once you buy Monsanto seeds, you're you know you're in servitude for life. Can you talk about a little bit about that and whether there's anything any merit to those complaints? Well, I, you know, I totally get 
balking at intellectual property for food. And again, this kind of goes back to this idea of naturalness and that food is this essential thing that's grown in the earth and it can't be owned. But, you know, we've patented all kinds of fruits and vegetables, including, uh, in, well, all kinds of crops, including some organic ones. You know, patenting is not exclusive to genetically modified crops. And here's, I guess, here's my take on it. You know, I want to see lots of public investment on crop improvement, but I also want to see private investment. And sometimes private companies have deep pockets and they can pursue solutions that you might not get funding for in the public sphere. And the most important thing about these patents for me is that they're finite. Okay, yeah, somebody gets an exclusive and they get to charge whatever they want for this particular trait, but they only get it for like 17 years and different kinds of patents have different expiration dates. And then mankind gets it for the rest of humanity. And I don't think that's a bad bargain because, you know, 17 years is just a blip on human existence. And then we have this benefit for all time. So I want to see a robust public investment, but I'm also not opposed to private investment on well, these. Well, it's interesting. Since I'm the, uh, I'm the neoliberal shill on this show, <laughs> um, I'm actually somewhat more sympathetic to some of these uh, concerns about the you know, these corporations taking advantage of people in the developing world, um, where it's like, hey, look how charitable we're going to be. We're, uh, we're going to give you the, you know, give you these seeds so that you can have better yields on your, you know, on your smallholder farms. Um, and then, oh, and by the way, for the next 16 years, you have to, you have to buy our stuff. Um, I, I get, I get it a little bit, um, you know, why, why, people react to it. I think it's I think it's tricky. Can I push back on that Mike because you know going to the developing world and I haven't spent a lot of time there but I've been in Africa a couple of times and I've certainly talked to a lot of farmers and a lot of people who work with farmers. The farmers want that option. Because here's the thing, if you pay money for a crop that's supposed to yield more and it doesn't, you don't buy it next year. And if it yields enough so that you can justify the expense, then you do buy it. And this this argument sort of supposes that farmers in the developing world can't figure that out. And I want them to to solve the problem for themselves. I want them to have the choice. I don't think that it's something that we in the United States should be telling smallholder farmers, no, we don't want you to have access to that choice. I think one other uh, complaint you hear about GMOs, um, even in my family, <laughs> I hear sometimes. <laughs> to pick an example is, at random. <laughs> yes. Is this idea that, well, you know, you talk about the science, um, but who knows, right? Like, you know, they've only been around for 20 years. Um, like we don't, we haven't really tested this long enough and that it's, it's just uncertain. And we know that people have been eating regular crops for, for years, um, and they haven't, you know, grown horns or tails. Um, so isn't it just safer to, you know, to stick with what we knew? I totally get that. And the idea that you can put like any trait into 
any organism. I mean, that's some pretty scary shit when you think about it. And I, I, I get that. It is a very, very powerful tool. And I think what we need is a regulatory system that, that tries to, to peg oversight to the degree of risk. And the degree of risk isn't necessarily conferred by the fact that it the genome has been tinkered with. The degree of risk comes from how the genome has been tinkered with. You know, we're, we're talking about the debate over GMOs. You know, there's this kind of been this furor over these downsides that in many cases are kind of imaginary. And also this hype over yield gains that in many cases have been <laughs> completely overblown. Um, and I think... At times, it's it's obscured some real advances, right? We've we've discussed the the BT, the way that's reduced the use of pesticides. They genetically modified papaya trees and and saved it from extinction. Um, and of course, we, we're now hearing a lot about golden rice, right? Which is really, uh, you know, they're modifying rice uh, to solve some nutritional deficiencies. That is having a real health improvement uh, in in the developing world. The same is true with Aquabounty, right? The the salmon that we talked about at the very beginning, where, you know, there's been incredible, incredible furor over this stuff, all kinds of controversy, major retailers saying we will absolutely not carry these these frankenfish. Um, we stand with our customers. Um, they're having a lot of trouble getting off the ground. They've been, you know, at this for 30 years and they're just barely starting to sell fish. But again, they're going to increase yields about 25% um, with, uh, with the salmon, which again, don't get me wrong, that's, that's a really good, that's a good increase. But I think when you look at the, you know, the worldwide fish catch, um, a thousand tons of salmon that they're making right now every year are really not making a big dent. What's so exciting about GMOs, if we're honest, is not what's already happened. It's what can happen in the future. I think that's totally true. And some of the things that are in the pipeline that people are working on that may not be commercialized yet, and not all of them are going to pan out, but some of them undoubtedly will. And, you know, some of the ones I've been watching, there's one in particular, uh, uh, they're growing camelina, which is also called false flax. And they genetically modified it so it can produce long-chain omega-3 fats. Now, long-chain omega-3 fats, EPA, DHA, come almost exclusively from marine sources. They're an important part of diet. And the problem, what the problem that they solve is now that people are farming fish. Uh, the way that farmed fish can have EPA and DHA in them is that they're fed EPA and DHA. And so the, uh, uh, farmed fish have to be fed some quantity of wild fish. So we have people taking wild, small wild fish out of the ocean to feed them to farmed fish, which doesn't solve the problem of overfishing as clearly as we would like. But if you can get EPA and DHA from camelina and that can be used in fish feed, that's a win all the way around. Exactly. Instead of, uh, you know, we're going to solve our fish-eating-fish problem by having frankenfish eating franken-food. It's awesome. <laughs> 
But actually, I talked to uh, the the CEO of Yield 10, which is one of the companies doing Carmelina. And a lot of the genetic work that they're doing is to try to basically make it faster growing and adjusting their growing season so that you could grow Carmelina as a crop and you can do it as a cover crop. So you would be harvesting your cover crop. And he talks about doing it in between corn and soy rotations, um, where you think we have 200 million acres of corn and soy. Imagine half of them were able to use camelina as a winter cover crop. Well, it's like you've created another 100 million acres of land. Um, they're also, they're making it winter tolerant, right? So it means that you can grow it in areas that otherwise, you know, you couldn't have crops. And since we talk all the time about how like we're going to need more food and we don't have more land it's like a way to create land out of nothing you've got you know land that was unusable now being usable and i think i think that's kind of exciting but you've also talked about you know like in a warming world um, we're 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 in we have a danger of land becoming unusable and that's another way that gmos can help and it doesn't even have to be land becoming unusable. Just as weather conditions change, all of a sudden the plants that grew happily in a specific place aren't so happy anymore. And here in the United States, uh, the predictions for this year's uh, crop yields, many of them are down because of drought primarily. And as weather conditions change, this is going to happen more and more. So some of my favorite GMOs are the ones that are adapting, especially staple crops, for changing weather. And, you know, one of the ones that that is actually out there and is being used, but you never hear about it, is rice that is tolerant to being submerged in water. And this is really important in low-lying areas in Asia, which A, get flooded, and B, depend on rice as a staple crop. And so if rice can withstand that and flooding no longer means you lose your crop, that is a huge win. And there are other crops that are being modified to to, to withstand other kinds of weather conditions. There's a drought-tolerant wheat. There's disease-resistant cassava. Um, and one of my favorites— Right, because the diseases are spreading to areas they couldn't get to before, right? right? Because and. Of- you know, in 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 Africa, the bananas are a staple crop, and bananas were being in some places in Africa, and bananas have been basically under siege by a disease called bacterial wilt. And in Kenya, they developed a banana that was resistant to bacterial wilt by taking one gene from, I believe it was a green pepper plant, and inserting that in the banana. And I've been in the greenhouses where they have the control banana plants and the genetically modified banana plants, and they introduce bacterial wilt, and all of the controls die and none of the genetically modified ones do. It's, it's a beautiful sight. That's exciting. What we're talking about is this idea of using genetic modification in ways that haven't been considered before. I I think of, for example, uh, you know, everybody's talking about the Impossible Burger and how we're turning plants into meat, and we've discussed this ad infinitum. But one thing that I think people don't realize is, particularly in the Impossible Burger, the, the stuff that makes it red and juicy is called heme. 
And it's, you know, mimicking a substance that you'll find in nature. But the way they're making their heme is they're genetically modifying microbes um, to then use precision fermentation the way you'd, you know, the way you'd make beer or bread, and they're they're essentially growing it with these microbes that are genetically modified to you know be particularly efficient at making this stuff. Like as you say that, like half the people listening are going, "That's really cool," and the other half are going, "Ew, that's disgusting," <laughs> <laughs> because we're either wizards or prophets, right? But again, the the in this case, the genetically modified organism doesn't even go into the food; it's making the food. Like you're seeing the same thing. There's companies like Perfect Day, um, which is making fake dairy, but they're doing it entirely through. They call it microflora because people don't like to think that they're using fungi, right? But again, it's, you know, they're genetically modifying microbes to then go do its thing, to, uh, to, to make the stuff. And it turns out that, you know, you can make microbes do their job really well. And as you pointed out before, there is real risk because you can create a monster. And especially now, I mean, the genetically modified talk has has progressed beyond the original tools that developed Roundup Ready Corn. And now we have CRISPR and we have other techniques with real precision uh, capabilities to, to take out specific genes, to add in specific genes. And it's icky to some people... But I don't think you're looking hard if you don't see the potential for abusing that technology. Right. You mentioned CRISPR, which is just, uh, you know, an extraordinary new technology. Um, How is that different from just sort of plain old, you know, rudimentary genetic modification? Uh, The the old techniques were sort of a blunt force instrument and uh, and. To figure out whether the modification was the thing that you wanted without side effects, you had to, like, grow the plant and figure it out. And they still do that in CRISPR. But now it's just that these are incrementally more accurate, more precise, and cheaper. And so as that happens, the scope of what they can accomplish also expands. And But, you know, again, it's this idea that all of these things are a tool. And if I have a hammer, I can fix my neighbor's roof or I can kill his dog. <laughs> and we do have to be cautious about this, but we hear it all the time. Oh, the precautionary principle, which basically just means never be the first to do anything. And it invokes the unknown on anything that you're not crazy about. And I think we have to regulate these risks carefully. But again, the risks are not necessarily uh, commensurate with how the particular food in question was arrived at. Oh, exactly. When you think of, you know, you know, we we have devices in our pocket that have all of human knowledge um, <laughs> that 20 years ago, people would have looked at you like you're a nut if you said that you could, you know, have that on your phone and there's also a camera. I mean, this is crazy stuff. I visited the University of Illinois where they are literally reinventing photosynthesis. This is a process that's been around for three billion years, it's responsible for all life on Earth. And these, you know, these 
geniuses are like, well, yeah, but it's kind of inefficient. And they've already using the power of modern supercomputing, um, where you can essentially model photosynthesis and figure out, you know, where the bottlenecks are. Combining that with this incredible genomic revolution, they've already come up with four tweaks to photosynthesis um, through genetic modification and CRISPR that they think they can use to just, if only these four work, possibly increase crop yields around the world world like 50, 60%. So there's just unbelievable technologies out there. It might be a little weird, and it's true, there's some uncertainties, um, but you want to talk about a precautionary principle, um, the earth is on fire. <laughs> like, you know, and and if we want to, we want to take precautions to stop that. <laughs> so I think saying like, well, we have these cool technologies that we think can help us grow more food with less land, but we don't want to use them because, you know, maybe in 80 years, it'll turn out that they cause some kind of health problem that nobody's anticipated and that none of our science is of today is indicating. I just think we don't have 80 years to wait to be absolutely sure everything's perfect. So you and I, I think, are optimists and we are both really interested in and not put off by technology. And I think that there's so much happening and it's so clear that that tinkering with the genome is a more effective, efficient way to arrive at better crops that I do think this is the, you know, the future of crop development and and it's going to have a role in animals too. I totally agree that there's risk in introducing any new food, no matter how you arrived at it, into our food supply. And we have to take those seriously, but we have to balance that against the risk of not doing it. It's it's very understandable that people see these technologies and they say like, oh, that's uncertain, that's risky, that might hurt me, that might hurt my children. Um, but climate change hurts. <laughs> it's going to hurt billions of people, uh, mostly poor people, uh, mostly people living in the developing world. And, you know, I think we kind of owe it to them to give it a shot. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we want to talk to you. We want to know what you care about. So call us at 508-377-3449 or email us at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Anne Bailey is the senior editor. Managing producer is Cecily Mesa-Martinez. And Dalvin Abouage is the associate producer. Engineering by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfranc. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. If you like our show, please help spread the word. Give us a rating, a review on Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. And if you think somebody else would like it, who you know, give them a link. 